All right, everybody, come on in. We're going to get started um, with our time here this morning. We're in for a treat today. Um, Creation Ministries International CEO Gary Bates is here to bless us with uh, not one, but two messages today. And so you all are here for the first one. I just want to uh, welcome you all. Um, those of you who are visiting First Baptist Church of Gallatin, it's, it's, it's a joy to see you and to have you with us. Um, we're going to open uh, in prayer asking God to help us before we look at these very, very important uh, aspects of God's Word uh, in a Christian worldview. So excited for this. Let's pray before our great God and our Creator God. Father, we are so thankful that you are Uh, our Lord and our Creator, Lord, that you has revealed yourself in your word, majestic things, things too much for us to even grasp. Would you help move all of our hearts today as we consider the deep things from your word and the deep things from your world? Would you help all of us to be encouraged and edified and built up? Would you help the believers here to have their faith increased and strengthened because of the truths and the confidence that we can have as your children. Oh God, we love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, that you would be with Gary as he shares with us today, that you would uh, use him to edify everybody who is here. We say this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. And I am on. Yes? Okay, there we are. So I'm going to give you a heads up. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant today because uh, although I'm doing two talks, uh, I could probably do 50 because we live at an age, believe it or not, when we actually have so much information for biblical creation. But, you know, my ministry, we speak in about um, 300 plus churches every year in the US and our experiences, most people don't know about it, which is why I'm here today, why we go to churches to inform Christians about all the exciting evidence on creation. And uh, for the Sunday School Hour, what I'm going to talk about is one specific subject as part of the creation evolution debate. And probably one of the most asked questions we always get, not just from children, but from adults too, is, well, what about dinosaurs? How do I fit dinosaurs in the Bible? Okay, the incredible creatures that we see in uh, in uh, movies, documentaries, etc., and people want to know, how do we fit them in? Why? Well, because when we watch those movies and documentaries, we're told, for example, there was this great age of dinosaurs that lasted from 300 million years ago, and the last dinosaur died out about 66, 65 million years ago, uh, etc. So, uh, again, I'm going to mention this a couple of times today as you look at the screens, our website... Our ministry's been going for over 40 years, and pretty much everything I'm going to cover with you today, you could find answers on our website. For example, I'm not going to talk about radiometric dating or carbon-14 dating, because people think that proves millions of years, etc. But again, you could type that into our website and get an answer on it. So let's go along. Have a look at those four creatures there on the screen. A, we've got a parrot. We've got a T-Rex. C, we've got a fish. D, We've got a dolphin. Notice the question. Which one of these has been on earth the longest? All right, I'll give you about 10 seconds to think about it. But let's do a snap poll. Anybody think A? All right, what about B? Okay, C? 
All right, D. All right, we've got a variety for each answer, but most of you didn't put your hands up, so we should probably have a fifth one which says, who's too chicken to say? Probably most of you, right? Don't trust the Australian up here. Well, the reason I put that up is in all of our thinking, ladies and gentlemen, we need to think biblically. We don't try to fit subjects into the Bible. We use the Bible as an interpretive lens to explore our world. Okay, so have a look there. There's the six days of creation. Okay, now notice on day five, that's one in the middle bottom, the sea and the flying creatures. doesn't say birds. In fact, the Hebrew term there for the flying creatures, we would transliterate oof, like O-P-H. And it means creatures that move through the air. And then on day six, it says the land animals, creatures that move along the ground and mankind, Adam and Eve on day six. Now, Evolutionists say dinosaurs evolved into birds. They became birds. But have a look. Day five, we have the flying creatures, birds, land animals and man. God must have made dinosaurs on day six. So the evolutionary order there is the wrong way round according to the biblical account. Can you see that? So when we go back to that previous slide there, when we look at A, B, C, D... Now when we answer this, A, D, and C were actually made on day five. The C and the flying creatures. B, a land animal, T-Rex, he was made on day six. And there's about a dozen examples. If you try to fit the evolutionary order, according to evolutionists, in the Bible, you're going to see that the actual order conflicts with the order we see in the Bible. So it's all about how we look at our world. And I'm going to talk more about this in the second talk. Our worldviews, our belief systems, are the ultimate criterion for which we use for interpreting our world around us. Biblical creation, what do we derive from that? Clearly, creation was around about 6,000 years ago. There was no death, no millions of years, and dinosaurs lived at the same time as humans. If dinosaurs are land animals and God made land animals on day six with mankind, they lived at the same time. What a radical thought. And here's the passage, Genesis 1.25. God made the wild animals according to their kinds. Notice the word their kinds, boys and girls, not species. We'll talk more about that later. Kinds of animals. The livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So I'm going to deal with some of these urban legends that kind of confuse us about dinosaurs. We're fascinated by them because we watch movies like Jurassic Park and they're these huge carnivorous meat eaters. Well, here's a a picture or an illustration of a tooth. It gives you an example of the tooth of a T-Rex. A lot of people don't know they actually had little serrated edges on them. And when you look at that, you think, wow, they make really good steak knives, don't they? So look at this skull here. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want you to guess, but let me tell you a couple of things about it. Those front fangs there, when I look at those, maybe I could deduce that they're great for grabbing hold of its prey, you know, putting that death bite in it, locking hold of it, it's not going anywhere. And those side teeth, those side cutters there, they are actually so sharp that if I broke one off, I could slice a piece of paper with it. So maybe I could think, wow, really good for chewing off lumps of flesh off the, off the prey or something like that. So anybody want to have a guess what you think it is? Wolverine, anybody else? Come on, be brave. You're going to get it wrong anyway. Come on. Bear. 
Well, first lesson, never trust an Australian. That's actually the skull of a fruit bat. So these things used to flap around in my back garden uh, eating my papayas. Now, why did I give you this example? What am I trying to do? So I'm going to talk more about the fact that as creationists and evolutionists, we have the same facts. We've got the same rocks and fossils to look at. So when I presented that to you, rather than just saying, well, look, there's a skull with sharp teeth. Did you notice I said maybe those teeth are used for grabbing hold of its prey, slicing off meat? So I shaped the way you thought about it, and I gave you the impression it was a carnivore. But actually, how do I know it's a carnivore just from looking at a skull with sharp teeth? So boys and girls, as you go through education, just remember when somebody holds up a piece of fossil or a fossil, and he says, look, here's the fossil leg of a hominid, a missing link that lived two million years ago. How does he know that? He can't. Okay, what he has is a, a fossil, a leg perhaps of some creature that lived in the past. So you've got to learn to separate the facts from the stories that are associated with them. And in fact, on day six, remember there had been no fall, so everything was still a vegetarian, including dinosaurs with great big teeth, because teeth are not an indication of what something eats. For example, you could look at uh, Chinese panda bears that have razor, razor sharp teeth. Why? Because their favorite food is bamboo, and you need pretty sharp teeth to eat bamboo. Some of you this morning, you had breakfast, right? You had American sausage. I think there's meat in it, but I mean, you ate dead pig, right? But according to the Bible, you and I were originally created vegetarian, originally. Of course, after the flood, God said to Noah, you may now eat meat. Why? Well, the only um, mandate for saving animals were those on the ark. So it's possible a lot of the protein-bearing plants that we needed before the flood uh, may have been destroyed uh, during the flood. A lot of the confusion comes about because you don't see the word dinosaur in the Bible. Dinosaur is a modern word. It's a Greek term meaning terrible lizard or fearsome lizard. And a scientist by the name of Sir Richard Owen found the bones of a megalosaur and a iguanodon, and he said these look like the bones of some terrible lizard. He thought they looked similar to reptile bones, for example. So that's why you don't see the word dinosaur in the Bible. But I want you to think about this. In the fossil record, we see pictures or, um, sorry, we find fossils of dinosaurs in the process of eating each other, uh, teeth marks, uh, tooth, teeth stuck in their bones, etc. So there's all that death and suffering we see in what's called the fossil record, the rock layers with the fossils in them. And could that have been occurring, you think, millions of years before Adam and Eve? Well, remember at the end of day six, God saw everything and it was very good. You see, here's a fossilized rib cage from a sauropod dinosaur. The sauropods are those ones with the uh, huge long necks and the huge long tails. And this website is scanning a tumor, fossilized cancerous tumor. And they're saying, wow, that tumor looks like cancer is the same today as it was millions of years ago. One, there's no evolution in it. But again, could you have cancer existing millions of years before Adam and Eve. Can you see the theological problems? If we try to take the secular view, for example, of dinosaurs and add that to the Bible. So what about the idea that they're always these large, fierce beasts? I mean, that's what fascinates us about them. They're some of the largest land animals that ever lived. But did you know that some of them were as small as a chicken? 
you need your teeth in to say this one, Compsognathus. Okay, imagine that. If he was still around today, boys and girls, and you could breed him, you'd probably all be eating KFD down the road instead of KFC. That'd be pretty neat, wouldn't it? But all dinosaurs, even the great big ones, like the Apatosaurus is 60 foot long, they all originally started as eggs. So they're all originally once small. But of course, they grew into some of the largest land animals that have ever existed. Have a look at that representation of a fossil leg bone from a sauropod dinosaur. I mean, you'd probably hear him coming before you saw him, wouldn't you? One of them they named Seismosaurus, which literally means earth-shaking lizard. And there are some even bigger than that today. Let's have a look at some. So I flew on that exact plane yesterday, a 737-900. And you can see there, look at some of the sauropod dinosaurs. They're almost as long as a modern jet. And if you can see on the screen in the bottom left corner, there's an African elephant. If you've been to the zoo and seen elephants face to face, particularly the African bull elephants, the males, they are absolutely huge. But they dwarf into comparison with some of these sauropod dinosaurs. And one of the candidates for the largest is this guy known as Amphicelius. And you can see there, and some of the what they call the subspecies underneath, but do you see how similar they are? Long necks, long tails, and they give them different species names. And the reason they do that, because they don't generally find whole dinosaur skeletons. That's extremely rare. They find fragments of fossils or bones. So there's Amphicelius at the top. And you see that little red circle? That's everything they found. That's a piece of backbone, a vertebrae. Now, you might be thinking, oh, well, you know, is that some kind of fraud? No, because if you looked at that vertebrae and it's just larger than, say, the, ver- the vertebrae of one of the smaller ones, like Supersaurus or Seismosaurus, then it's fair to assume that it's similar but just bigger. But what they do is they give it a different species name, and I'm going to talk about that in, in a while, rather than thinking that it is just variation within a created kind. There's been a revolution in dinosaur paleontology uh, in recent years where they realize they've been overnaming the dinosaurs. And a lot of people go through these kind of mental or theological gymnastics with regard to dinosaurs because we're threatened by the evolutionary ages assigned to them. But they existed. We have their fossils. Fossils are great evidence for biblical creation and in particular the flood. Look at this fish here. I was told that fossils take millions of years to slowly form, but here's this guy in the process of having his lunch. I mean, he's a pretty slow eater if that's the case, isn't it? See, when you see that, it's evidence that something rapid and catastrophic happened to it in the process of its eating its lunch. We find exquisite preservation in the fossil record. Here's a piece of dinosaur skin photographed by our staff geologist in Australia, and you can see the creases and the bumps and the nodules. It's a piece of rock now, but it's like a plaster cast impression. The organic material gets slowly replaced and turned to stone. I'll talk more about fossils later and how they are formed, but in our uh, most famous dinosaur museum down under in our nation's capital in Canberra, these are some plates, some exhibits that show show us how they think dinosaur fossils are formed. And so a dinosaur dies and he sinks to the lake floor or the ocean floor and he gets covered by sediments. Can you see those layers in the rock? 
It's those layers. That's the idea where the millions of years come from. And so he gets covered by these sediments. The organic material gets replaced, turned to stone. He becomes a fossil. And then for some reason we discover it, dig him up or it gets uncovered, etc. And then they think they're digging up millions of years of history. We'll talk more about how we can unpack that in, in the next talk. But again, another example of exquisite preservation. In fact, over 98% of the fossil record are creatures that typically live on the ocean floor, not even fish. Fish are vertebrates. But look at this. You can see the scales, the fins, the eyes, the mouth. And generally, when a fish dies in the ocean, <laughs> it doesn't usually lie around waiting to be fossilized, does it? Okay, so it usually gets eaten, predated, decay. Something happened to bury it very, very quickly. And it doesn't take millions of years to turn things into fossil. Here's a fossil hat. This was buried in a cave in Tasmania, the little island state off the south coast of Australia. And it was actually just buried in water. But the water was heavily laden with minerals. And within 50 years, it became uh, a piece of solid rock. So it doesn't take a lot of time either. So the flood. The flood is the great mechanism for giving us the billions and billions of fossils we have. Most of them shallow creatures, algae, sponges that live on the ocean floor. The flood started in the deep oceans, the fountains of the great deep, the Bible says. Tsunamis would have been raging across the pre-flood world, across the oceans, churning up the sediments, burying everything in situ where it sits on the ocean floor. And most of the vertebrates live on land. So generally, we're not going to get buried, but we're going to drown. We're going to float, bloat, rot, get eaten by other things. And that's why I think when we look at the fossil record with the volume, it's consistent also with what we'd expect from a global flood. But I said it's a very, very exciting time to be a creationist. When I, what I'm about to show you when I first started a ministry 30 years ago, we didn't have. We're now finding lots and lots of examples of soft dinosaur tissue, not fossilized. Now remember, the last dinosaur, according to evolutionists, died out 65 million years ago. But what you're looking at there, and this was reported in Nature magazine, that's a blood vessel, and those red dots or those dark dots there are unfossilized red blood cells. Blood cells. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that that type of material is not going to last, is it, for millions of years. The same scientist on an expedition here in the United States, they had this giant T-Rex leg bone. They couldn't drive into the location. They had a helicopter and they cut the bone in half. And when they did and all the matrix fell away from the outside, look at that on the top left, they found ligament. Top right, flesh. More blood vessels, more red blood cells, and she said it was flexible and resilient when stretched, returned to its original shape. So it's still soft and stretchy. Again, doesn't sound like 65 million year old material, does it? You know, this is what she said, Mary Schweitzer. She said, when you think about it, the laws of chemistry and biology and everything else that we know say that it should be gone. It should be degraded completely. So did that make her think they can't be 65 million years old? No. She's an evolutionist. The set of glasses she wears. It's unthinkable to think that these things may have only lived thousands or hundreds of years ago, which is consistent with the evidence. And then there was a huge shock because 
besides soft tissue, they found unfossilized DNA okay, in the bone cells of a, a T-Rex. Now, why is that so shocking? Well, in the nucleus of our cells, okay, we have this chemical hard drive, a molecule called DNA. And that's basically what it's like, a hard drive, and it contains lots of computer codes. The DNA molecule uh, prescribes or codes for building proteins and it's got repair mechanisms and all sorts of things. These incredible little machines come along and every time our cells reproduce and we carry mutations, which are actually letters, copying mistakes, letters that have uh, been copied incorrectly, it tries to repair them. But it doesn't get all of them and ultimately that's the reason we die. By the way, there's a chicken and egg problem there because the code for making the machines that actually repair the code are on the DNA, which came first. All had to be present the very first time that life appeared. But the reason I'm telling you that is it's a very, very fragile molecule. And at the moment of death, those machines don't work anymore, so it just breaks down very, very quickly. If you were to snap-freeze DNA at the moment of death, It could not last any more, even frozen. We've calculated about 200,000 years, but the last dinosaur allegedly died out 65 million years ago. You know, I was in a speaking tour of South Africa some years ago, and first time was my fifth trip, and I said to my wife, let's have some time off at the end, and we went to Kruger Park, big wildlife park. And we were in the Jeep, and our guide took us round And he says, I want to show you over here. He said, three days ago, the lions had just killed a water buffalo. Now, I don't know if you've seen these water buffalo. They weighed around about six to 7,000 pounds. They're the size of a small car. But look what's left after three days. (laughs) See, the big cats have their fill, the small cats, the dogs, the hyenas, the vultures, right, the rodents, the insects. And notice what they've done. There's no skeleton left. They take away the pieces to their lair off to safety so they can feed on it. That's what happens generally in the real world when something dies. So to find you know, soft tissue, to find uh, exquisite preservation in the fossil record occurring through kind of natural processes like this is not reasonable. So I've just shown you scientific evidence that refutes the idea that dinosaurs lived and died out millions of years ago. What about some biblical ideas? Well, in Job 40.15, we have... Okay, God is talking to the man Job. Remember, Job's having a difficult time. And at the end of the book of Job, he talks to him in creation passages. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? I think he was reassuring him, obviously, that he was creator because Job ended up pronouncing at the end, didn't he? I know my Redeemer lives. With my own eyes, my own flesh, I will see him. So he had confidence that God could raise him up. But God points to this creature at that time. And he says, look at behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. He's a vegetarian. Strength in his loins, in the muscles of his belly, etc. Hangs his tail like a cedar. Bones are like uh, tubes of bronze, like bars of iron. He's obviously describing some impressive creature. But there we get an indication of what the creature might be like. He hangs his tail like a cedar. Job presumably lived somewhere in the Middle East, and of course God is referring him to the cedars of Lebanon, great big trees, which I'll show you a picture of in a moment. But be careful, because even my 
Good translation study Bible says in the bottom, it might be a hippo or an elephant. Now, why do they do that? Because even our theologians and our, our you know, learned men have become convinced that dinosaurs lived and died millions of years ago. It's impossible that humans could have seen them. So here's one of those cedars of Lebanon, all right? Or a couple of them there. You can see they're fairly substantial trunks on them. Can you think of any land animal alive today that has a tree, a tail like that tree? Because I most certainly can't. So here's the, here's the, t, uh, the tail, you know, tree-like. And I took a picture in Africa of the hippo. I mean, it doesn't exactly fit, does it? What about the three wise elephants there? No. It's the only creature we know of that existed that had a, a tree-like tail is a sauropod dinosaur. Okay. And elsewhere it says that he was standing in the River Jordan with his mouth against the surge. He was a vegetarian, etc. We believe the sauropods were vegetarian. So there is lots of archaeological evidence as well, hundreds and hundreds of examples. Here's a Chinese uh, jade dragon, and notice the curled frill at the top, very resemblant of a dinosaur known as a protoceratops. A 16th century tapestry, and you can see the image up in the top left, there's a duckbill on it, the earlobes are in the right place, the right number of toes, Okay, it's a duckbill dinosaur known as a Mayazura. And a couple of years ago, um, we already knew about it, it had been revealed, but myself and fellow CEOs, we went to Cambodia, Southeast Asia, to Angkor Wat, that massive series of temples, and in one temple called Ta Prom, if you look at that, you can see a human at the top, there's a deer, uh, go to the bottom, there's an iguana, and the second from bottom, there's a close-up of it, it looks like a stegosaurus. The bony plates on the back, the right number of horns, etc. And in fact, we weren't sure where to find it because the complex is so big and we just said to our Cambodian guide, do you know where the stegosaur is? And he goes, oh yeah. So they even recognize it as that. So all of this evidence we see around the world. Here's one from uh, northern England and there's a, um, in fact, for some reason that last picture didn't come up there. Okay. That picture should have been a tomb of an English bishop by the name of Bishop Bell. And he was buried in 1496. And there are brass inlays around his tomb. And on those strips, you can see there a bat, a fish, a dog. Notice the dog's got a collar on it, so it's somebody's pet. A bird. But then there are these other creatures. And this looks like two sauropod dinosaurs. Now, I don't know if you can make it out on the screen. The one on the right, if you look at the very tip of his tail, nothing dramatic there, but the one on the left has a split or a cleft in his tail with two spikes on it. And there were only one, one of two, sorry, only two dinosaurs that had that feature and one of them, uh, possibly this one here called Shunosaurus. So two necking dinosaurs but distinctive features to make them different. So I'm only showing you ones here where we actually have a lot of detail so we can try to work out what they are. They're not kind of nebulous images that could refer to anything. Um, this is unmistakable on a Mesopotamian cylinder seal, a, a long-necked uh, small sauropod dinosaur known as Tanistrophius. Look at that long spindly neck that it had there, etc. 
All of that, by the way, um, comes from a book out there from one of our creationist colleagues in Canada, Vance Nelson, called Untold Secrets of Planet Earth, Dire Dragons. I've left one open. There's an old copy there. That stuff I've just shown you is in there and lots, lots more. He's toured all over the world um, and he could have filled five books <laughs> uh, with the amount of uh, evidence he found that humans have seen these creatures. But, of course, they didn't call them dinosaurs. Remember I said the word dinosaur wasn't invented until 1846. But it looks like these creatures of the past, the ancients called them dragons. Today we think of dragons as some mythical creature, but all over the world people have stories of dragons. In fact, if you looked at the Chinese calendar, you know, they have a year of the rat, the rooster, the dog, all real creatures, (laughs) and then they have a year of the dragon also which people think is mythical. That one I'm showing you there is a famous English legend, which actually spread all over Europe too, about St. George, that famous English knight that apparently killed a hissing dragon in a cave in the Middle Ages. The flag of Wales has a dragon on it, for example. So I think what people think are legends of dragons, which we find in just about every people, group and culture around the world, are really our dinosaurs of history. So, I've given you a bit of information uh, to help you answer this question, perhaps. Do you think dinosaurs were on the ark? Yes? No? Too chicken to say again. All right. (laughs) Well, let's work it out. Here's a picture showing Noah trying to get Stegosaurus on the ark, but uh, one of the problems with that is it represents the ark as some leaky bathtub. The Bible spends a whole three chapters talking about the flood that destroyed the earth because of sin. Pretty serious event, ladies and gentlemen. And, you know, we're well-meaning, but when we buy these kind of golden book images for our children, we're really saying that the ark is just a fairy story. I mean, how's Noah going to get two of every kind of land animal on a leaky bathtub like that? The Bible gives us the dimension. Cubits, yes, and regardless of what size you want to argue about the cubit, but look at that. The minimum size it would have been was 462 feet long, 70 feet wide, 60 feet high. Can you see a semi-trailer there and people for scale? In fact, Korean naval architects, the ones that design those great super tankers and freight carriers we see today, they modelled it and showed that it had the perfect dimension and ratio Not surprised. I mean, God designed it, right? To be stable in huge seas. There you go. How did primitive man know about that? It had the carrying capacity of 522 railroad cars of stock. Okay? Now, remember, not all the dinosaurs were large. Remember I said some were as small as a chicken. In fact, from the fossil record, it looks like the average size of the dinosaurs was something about the size of a small pony, like a junior pony, something like that. Yes, some were small, some were big, but the majority were actually not that big at all. And I remember I said some started as eggs, okay, like the big sauropods. So I'm not suggesting Noah took eggs on board the ark because the whole purpose of saving people and animals was to reproduce after the flood. Okay, They had to refill the earth. But years ago... Creationists came up with what they call the teenage dinosaur theory. Because when we look at a lot of animals today, reptiles and even humans, we can reproduce, they're sexually mature before they're actually physically 
mature. In other words, um, they're not fully grown, but they can reproduce. And so that theory kind of seems to have been borne out. So I'm going to have to check this, Daniel, because some of my pictures haven't come out. But that was an image there of... Okay, we don't have any more images at all. We've lost them all. Is it advancing? Yeah. But there are no pictures. So if you go down to about number 65... All right, so I'll have to try to continue without slides, which is going to be very, very difficult. But what I was going to show you there was a graph from a secular magazine which showed the growth rates looking at leg bones of an Apatosaurus. That's one of those giant sauropod dinosaurs. And what they're showing is that from about age four, it started to undergo a teenage growth spurt, just like human beings. So in fact, um, Noah could have taken you know, juvenile dinosaurs on the ark. They were only on the ark, right, for one year, and then after they alighted off the ark, then they can continue to grow. But immediately, they could, of course, uh, reproduce. So in the terms of the names kinds versus species, something you've got to be careful of here, boys and girls, because God created a dog kind. He created a human kind. He created a cat kind. And when we look at dogs and cats today... All of them can still interbreed. But you look at tigers and lions, and they are given different separate species names. But what's called hybridization occurs. Lions and tigers can interbreed. Tigers and pumas can interbreed. Okay? So are they the same kind or separate species? Well, they're actually both because the word species is just a man-made term and there's no real definition. Sometimes it's used to describe creatures that look slightly different to each other, and sometimes it's used uh, when they will no longer interbreed with each other. So let me give an example, right? Every member of the dog cat family can interbreed. But if I had something the size of a Great Dane and a Chihuahua, it's not likely, right, in the wild or in nature that they're going to interbreed with each other because of the physical differences. But technically, you could uh, interbreed them. You could actually, the chihuahua could be the mother, and you could actually implant, inseminate her, and her DNA would control the birth size. Now, I would suggest if we hadn't seen chihuahuas and Great Danes alive today, and we maybe just found their fossils, they'd probably call them separate species as well. So sometimes paleontologists, based on finding bones, call them separate species, or, as I said, they just look different, they're alive today, look different, or no, they no longer interbreed. But my point here, the fact that some of those will still interbreed tells you they came from an original created kind. Now, when they don't interbreed, it still doesn't mean that they didn't come from an original created kind, but um, 
as I said, what is, what's happening is there's a loss of genetic information. The more that you specialise, the more that you breed separate animals apart, you're actually losing genetic information. So I want you to imagine you've got something like a chihuahua. Well, you've now lost the genetic information for largeness, for want of a better term, right? It's disappeared from that particular breed. And so you can specialise, right? If I wanted to breed a nice small type of dog to run down ferret holes, okay? An English reverend, reverend by the name of Jack Russell did that. He selectively bred a dog for a specific reason. So nature can do it, and that's called natural selection. Some creatures with favourable traits will survive better in some environments than others. The reason I mention that, natural selection, boys and girls, is not evolution. It's just a term that describes what we see in nature. If we go and throw a truckload of dogs with short, medium, and say long fur into an Arctic or an Alaskan winter, which ones have a survival advantage? The dogs with long fur. So nature culls out dogs with short and medium fur. Long fur dogs survive because they have a survival advantage, but then they are the ones that are going to breed, and they'll breed and they'll produce dogs with long fur. So you can see how they've adapted to their environment. But it's the opposite of what evolution requires because evolution requires new information. If you want to turn pond scum into people, you've got to add encyclopedias worth of information. And that example with dogs I gave you, natural selection reduces genetic information. Okay? So don't be misled because in my years, when teenagers come up to me in churches and they're in uh, colleges, etc., what happens is they say, well, natural selection's real. Creatures change over time. Yes, they do. But it can only come, understand this, from information that was already present. It can only select from what was available. It does not create something new. All right, so what can we learn from today? Well, if we think about Job and the problems he was going through, and God says, look at Behemoth, which I made along with you, something he could wrap his mind around. You know, I think that when we look at dinosaurs, rather than thinking about millions of years of evolution, we should look at them in the context that they are some of the most incredible creatures that God ever made. Yes, we don't, we don't see them today. Now, I've shown you some information. I'm going to talk more in the next session about the flood and fossils. God preserving, you know, two of every kind of animals, eight people, right? And seven of some animals, of course, from his wrath that was to come. They had to enter through that door of the ark. So that ark was an ark of salvation, wasn't it, for the world then? And figuratively speaking, we can kind of call Jesus, if you like, like an ark of salvation today. And he says in John 10, 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. And Genesis seven sixteen reminds us the animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. Noah didn't pull the door closed behind him. It's very significant. The Lord shut him in. Now, you know, before the flood, and there's a genetic reason for this we could talk about, but people lived for hundreds of years. 
So we don't know what the average family size was. You know, I mean, it says Adam and Eve, for example, had many sons and daughters. But creation scientists have estimated, right, at the minimum, there was probably about half a million, that's 500,000 people alive at the time of the flood. And at the maximum other end, possibly about 2 billion people. Now, the real number is going to be somewhere in between. But let's say it's even half a million people or 2 million people. How many survived the flood besides Noah and his family? Anybody know? Zero. Wow. That's a pretty sobering thought, isn't it? And, of course, God says that the world is going to be destroyed again. Not by a flood, but by fire. The heavens will be rolled up in a fervent heat. And 2 Peter 3.5 warns us of willful ignorance today. It says, They deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. You know, if you wanted to look at the evidence for a global flood, it's everywhere. Thousands of feet of sedimentary layers with fossils in them. And some showing, as I said, exquisite preservation and rapid burial. But they look at the same facts and they say, no, no, that's millions of years of history and evolution on the earth. In Luke 17, 26 to 27, the Lord Jesus said these words, Just as it happened in the days of Noah... So shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, being given in marriage. In other words, just living their lives as if God didn't exist. It's until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So the Bible is the history book of the universe. But unlike any other history book, it not only tells the past, it tells us the future. God can do that because he is outside of time. Time was created when God made the heavens of the earth. He put a light source, the earth rotated, and here in our little section of the neighborhood, that's a day. That's how we measure time for ourselves. God is the timeless one with no beginning, no end. And there is a coming judgment. It's not something we like to talk about very much. So... As I said, Jesus, figuratively speaking, is like an ark of salvation. So let me ask you, whether you're here today or watching at home, are you on the ark of salvation that is Jesus Christ? Because going to church doesn't make us a Christian. Okay, It's confessing your sins and believing in the one whom God sent Okay, that will spare you from that coming judgment. But here's the good news. You get to spend eternity with the creator of the universe. And all the questions that are unanswered about dinosaurs, you'll have plenty of time to ask him about. All right. Pastor Daniel, back to you. I'm going to check the next talk to make sure all those figures have gone in. Apologize for that, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, hopefully you got a taste of, uh, of what that was like. And resources out there, that dinosaur book's out there. There are other books. There's a book there called um, How Noah's Flood Shaped Our Earth. The continents we have today did not exist in their form before the flood. We're living in a post-flood world, post-flood environment. There's a DVD uh, talk on dinosaurs. And there are a couple of books there called Exploring Geology and Exploring Dinosaurs with Mr. Hibb. There's a cartoon grasshopper on the front 
But don't think they're children books, all right? Have a look inside and uh, I'll guarantee you'll all learn something from them. Thank you.